Zero One prospered, and for a time, it was good. The machine's artificial intelligence could be seen in every facet of man's society, including eventually the creation of new and better AI. VR, um, and I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and today I'm speaking with, I can say your, yeah. I can say your name, Aaron right. Frank, is with Singularity University. I can say that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. <laughs> I already did. Yeah, but... no, I'm fine to, you know, I'm, I'm so Aaron Frank, I'm, uh, I work at Singularity University, I'm, um, I manage our strategic partnerships, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, happy to, you know, I'm here as an enthusiast of virtual reality, but but happy to speak to some of the things that you know Singularity University is involved with and working on. Yes, because I had the honor and pleasure to see, uh, to get to go to one of your open houses. And I mean, before we get to the whole VR thing, I just want to talk about that experience because that was profoundly uh, unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it was awesome. And it felt like I was, you know, going through the gate at NASA Ames. Yeah. It felt, and then, you know, you pull up to the, the building and it felt like I was at X-Men school. Like, <laughs> like, like, I, like I, I, and then I saw, I know the feeling well. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Ray Curls. I was like, <gasps> Professor X. Yeah. I saw, I think I saw Peter Diamantis and I was like, there he goes. Yeah. Um, so, did yeah, it's a pretty. I mean, it's a pretty surreal experience. So you know, we're so we're based at NASA NASA Research Park, which you know the Ames campus here in Silicon Valley, uh, and so you know the partnership with NASA came together about six years ago when the organi organization started. I'm sure we'll get into you know what is Singularity University and all of that, um, but yeah, we're based we're based there at the campus, and and yeah, I mean you know going to work there every day, and you know you see that you know, that spaceship right up front, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool, cool environment to, you know, sort of be studying and, and exploring all of these emerging technologies. Definitely. And for the uninitiated, what is Singularity University and how did it come about? Yeah. So Singularity University, I would, I would describe it first and foremost as a learning center. Uh, so we were founded six years ago. Um, we have two co-founders, uh, Ray Kurzweil, who you mentioned, um, and Peter Diamandis, who's sort of well known as the chairman and CEO of the XPRIZE Foundation. Uh, and so they came together six years ago and in partnership with NASA, companies like Google, Cisco, Genentech, Autodesk, 
um, basically wanted to create an organization that only focuses on this concept that we're seeing technology today in a few key technology areas develop at an exponential pace of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we really sort of pivot around this idea that, you know, humanity has really only recently woken up to this idea of exponential versus linear progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we were founded to sort of, you know, how can we empower business leaders, governments, entrepreneurs, innovators to learn to think in this exponential way and apply that thinking towards solving, you know, some really big global challenges that, that uh, our world is facing today. And so fundamentally, we, we educate uh, businesses and governments around how to think about absorbing all of this sort of explosive development that, you know, we're seeing in the world today. I mean, you know, I was just the cover of Fortune magazine this month is, you know, the, the billion dollar startup. It used to be the stuff of, you know, unicorns. And now it's, you know, it seems like every, you know, every hooded, uh, hoodie wearing entrepreneur you run into in Silicon Valley has a billion dollar company now. So what what's going on? And so we we help organizations think through um, that that speed of you know development in, in these technology areas. Let's stay on that a little longer because I'm I'm, I'm wondering about this exponential uh, rate of change versus the linear uh, rate of change. And what you guys are so you're trying to educate people about the fact that this exponential rate of change is happening. Um, and I'd like to know, like, what, do, how will this change uh, a business person's or an, a leader's decision, knowing that there is this thing happening, you know, versus someone who is stuck on the linear rate of change paradigm? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And so that's actually, you know, that kind of goes back towards uh, Ray, so Ray Kurzweil. So maybe it's, it's maybe it's in, in uh, our interest to sort of expand on some of his research, because the question you just asked is actually really uh, central to why Ray Kurzweil studied this idea of exponential progress, mm-hmm. uh, and so so what so Ray Kurzweil, for those you know who who aren't familiar with his background, was uh, he was an academic at MIT among you know many other things. He's he's an inventor. He's a futurist. Um, currently, he's at Google working on some really fascinating projects. Uh, but his work at MIT was really looking at this idea of exponential progress in computing. Uh, and so he, so he, as a business person, really, really wanted to understand the speed at which our ability to process data, you know, our computational power as a, you know, as a, as a species almost, you know, has has developed. And so he looked and he asked the question, how powerful have computers been over the last 120 years or so? And so what he found is that looking back towards, you know, even in the late 1800s, you know, the first paradigm of computing, a computer you know, back then was a job. It was, you know, there were rooms full of what were called calculators and there were people who processed data. They, you know, calculated, they were doing math essentially. And that was how we processed information. And so what he found is as you, as he looked in towards sort of the current paradigm of, you know, today we use integrated circuits, he saw a very smooth, measurable and predictable exponential growth pattern in our capability of processing data. And so the reason he was motivated to sort of research this idea is he wanted to understand if I can predict, you know, where our computational capabilities will be in the next, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, I can make some pretty powerful bets about what technologies may be possible, um, you know, what I can build, um, you know, today to sort of, you know, in the, the sports metaphor, skate to the puck, um, as opposed towards building a technology with today's capabilities. Yeah. 
it's fascinating, and I've been trying to read up on um, singularity is near and abundance. But but speaking to singularity is near, it's such a it's such a thick and complex <laughs> subject to try to wrap my head around. Yeah. Just the 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 exponential curve yeah. idea. That that's the one thing that hit me that struck me was how in the book he says uh, exponential curves are deceptive because it doesn't it doesn't work like linear where you like it's it, you can see the gradual pro progress it, it's it there might be like a there might be a dip or it might not look like it's growing but then it just explodes absolutely so so that's really you you just highlighted i would say the single sort of key so what of why singularity university was was created because as a human being as you know as as a creature of of how we as humans process information you know, we are at a biological disadvantage for processing exponential growth. We're just not wired to, to predict in an, in an exponential way. It's very counterintuitive. So the deception that you're, that you're bringing up, you know, if you look at how an exponential curve operates, you know, at the beginning of any curve, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be that explosive in its development. It's only when you reach sort of the, you know, the part of the curve where things really sort of outstrip our mind's ability to conceive of that growth. So there's, I mean, there's a few thought experiments to highlight this. Uh, I actually remember one of my, this, this has stuck with me, you know, my whole life. I remember when I was in like first or second grade, you know, one of my teachers, uh, you know, asked the class, she said, okay, class today, you know, I'm going to, we're going to do this thought experiment. I will give you not actually, but I will give you a million dollars or I'll give you this penny and we'll double the penny every day for 30 days. And you can have whatever's, you know, accrued or built up at the end of end of those 30 days. And so, you know, as a, as a second grader, you know, we're like, Oh, a million dollars. That's amazing. Let me, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, and then, you know, the whole point of course, of the exercise is that that penny, if you double it every single day, it turns into a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And what's so deceptive about the curve is where were you on day 29? Mm -hmm. You were at 500 million. Wow. So that last step, day 29 to 30, that's a half a billion, you know, increase in whatever. So, you know, if I were to take 30, linear steps you know our brains have a really easy time conceiving you know it's you know at step 15 i'm 15 meters away at step 30 i'm 30 meters away but if you do that exponentially you know two becomes four becomes eight you know at the beginning it doesn't seem like you're you know seeing this explosive growth but at step 30 you've actually gone the equivalent of a billion meters which is the equivalent of 26 times around the planet mm -hmm. And so step 29, where are you? 13 times around the planet. Mm -hmm. Step 28, you're, you know, seven and a half. So those last steps really just explode. And, and that's the difficulty where, you know, the brain doesn't have, our brains don't have an easy time mapping. Where am I, you know, halfway in that progression or a third of the way in the progression? And that's why if you can understand exponential curves, you, you have a really powerful toolkit for making predictions about where the, where humanity and where business and society uh, is headed. So you would say that your first dip your toe moment into exponential curves and that this whole concept was in second grade. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but yeah, you could you could make that argument. I, 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 would, <laughs> I would make an argument as well that uh, when I was in third or fourth grade, I had a Nintendo 64. And at the time, I was so in love with the graphics and the, what was going on behind the scenes that, you know, for example, that I started analyzing like Super NES had 32 bits and yeah. then 64 had 64 and then the GameCube had 128. And then I started extrapolating like, well, what are the next generations going to look yeah. like? Uh, and it was, and so I didn't nail exponential growth of the video game console sector, but I, I, I sort of saw 
the pattern. And it's insane to think about that because here's where I'm taking this conversation to it. The reason why I asked this. At Singularity, Ray Kurzweil was talking about virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know whether you guys think um, w whether virtual reality will be a technology that is that will be exponential. And if so, will there be that dip or that 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 straight line that is deceptive? And, and where do you think we are uh, right now in terms of this technology? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I actually had the same experience growing up, too. I remember I was, do you remember the Sega Game Gear? I, no, you know, it was like this? a handheld. It was like sort of like the handheld ver pre predecessor to the Game Boy Advance. And like, so my parents never let me get consoles. So I would always, you know, anything that was handheld, they'd let me have. Uh, and I, I remember thinking, you know, so the Sega Game or the the Sega Game Gear went out. Of, you know, I think it was stopped being produced when I was in like first grade or something. And then uh, I remember in like fifth grade, like something that was a handheld device. It was like the like the PSP came out. And yeah. I was just like, how does something that used to only exist in a console, you had to plug in your TV, now fit in the palm of my hand? I remember having that same kind of experience. Um, but yeah, so back back to your question. Um, it's – sorry, remind me. So so in, in the exponential growth curve – Oh uh, yeah, VR. Where is VR yeah, so fit, fitting in? This? Yeah, so there's a few there's a few different ways of thinking about this because you know these exponential curves don't apply to all aspects of the world in which we live. So mm -hmm. so it's actually really key to sort of hone in on what is and is not exponential. And so mm -hmm. one of the thing one of the things that Kurzweil um, sort of highlights in his research is the idea that you know what makes something become exponential. And so his his idea is that anything that can be digitized, anything that's powered by information, mm -hmm. subject to another way to think of that, anything that can be moved from analog to digital can then be powered by computation is then subject to this exponential growth. So, you know, with VR, you know, VR is a great example of the deceptive nature of, of exponential growth because, you know, VR has been heralded and proclaim this, you know, the next great technological wonder of the world for, for a while. And I think there's, you know, a, a, a community in VR that, you know, have certainly been made disillusioned in the past and are a little bit reticent, you know, is this time now really, you know, the time where we're going to see it explode? And so, so I would argue that VR is really a, a, a product of a bunch of sort of exponential curves in a whole range of other technologies. You see it with the components that you know allow the hardware um, to to be created and, and created in a form factor that you know allow this to happen. Mm -hmm. um, the part that I'm really fascinated by is that if you think about this idea, anything that becomes information mm -hmm. is subject to this explosive sort of exponential growth. So here's here's an example that you can think about. So in the world of photography, so in in Film photography, every photograph you take is an incremental addition to the inventory of all photographs that exist in the world. <laughs> when you move that paradigm from, from a material substrate to a digital substrate, so digital photography, the environment explodes. You get, you know, there's no marginal cost towards adding a new photograph to the inventory of photographs that exist. <laughs> so, you know, today there are more photographs being uploaded to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., 
than all of the film photographs that were ever taken collectively in the 100 plus year history of it every single day digitally. And so if you apply that thinking to VR, what is what is virtual reality doing? It's essentially digitizing. It's taking experiences from a world of analog to to essentially digital information. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you're going to see the environment explode in, in ways you know, I was listening, we were just talking um, about, you know, you had the, the, the guys from, from Learn Immersive, which I think is fascinating. I mean, that's such a cool application. The idea that, you know, I have a physical textbook that I carry around. I work, so I, I'm currently, you know, working with a, a teacher, a tutor that I have to physically go and meet with. The idea that it's just software, it's just information means that, you know, you democratize and explode the environment of being able to access uh, learning language. So that's that's where these these exponential curves really really come into play. Um, right? I would argue that you know it's it's a combination of the hardware uh, and the software, and it's it's a collection of you know the intersection of things like network and uh, bandwidth capabilities, uh, processing power, um, you know, computational uh, capabilities inside the devices that are really you know someone else I, th I think I heard on your show mentioned that it's really been. Uh, mobile devices that that has launched this this forward and so those exponential curves and the cost of the components you know the cost has come down at an exponential rate that's what's driving this forward and I think you know I think we really are at that that inflection point here so many questions so many questions buzzing in my head right now <laughs> that I, I I'm trying to figure out which one I'm gonna tackle first all right let's see so this one uh, let's so in the book, uh, Singularity is Near, mm -hmm. uh, Ray talks about how, I think it was not phonographs, but before the cassette, those giant discs, I don't know what they were called, phonographs, I'm not sure. But people were, so so he, he introduced the concept of pretender technologies, things mm -hmm. that like, they seem like they're going to replace a paradigm, but they really don't. So for example, he talks about how the cassette was a pretender technology, like it seemed like it was about to replace the giant disc thing phonograph forever, but it it was it was missing a, a key aspect, which was the ability to like rewind and pinpoint where exactly you want to be. Then CD came and CD just blew it out of the water, and that was the that paradigm shift. And so in VR, like the phonograph for me is the smartphone. You know what is the next you know paradigm? What are we are we what are we trying to replace? I feel like it's the smartphone because. For the majority of people on Earth, I would say that's probably going to be the computing paradigm that we're going to be using for the most part. I probably use my smartphone more than my computer sometimes. And so I, I wonder whether you, whether you think VR will be a pretender technology that is just a stepping stone for the next thing. Or is it, or is it a paradigm shift like the CD? It's a great, great point. So I think another, another sort of deceptive reason, it's and why sort of forecasting and making predictions is so, so important, um, is, is you know, trying to, if you, you know, as the CEO of a company, if you can spot those technologies that are going to replace and be, be completely disruptive to, uh, you know, an old paradigm, then, then you can make really powerful bets about where things are going. Uh, one of the key factors um, that that comes into play here, and, I, and you highlighted it with the, the cassette, um, is user experience. Is it easy for the average user to to operate in that environment? Yeah. And right now, you know, virtual reality is still kind of, I wouldn't say it's the lunatic fringe. It's moving more into like the early adopter stage. Yeah. Um, 
but it's still early adopters that have really sort of embraced this, this technology. Uh, and so uh, once it becomes an environment in which it's very easy, you know, to, to, I remember one of my friends in high school had the first mobile smartphone that I'd ever seen. It literally looked like he had taken a laptop computer and shrunk it into the size of a, of a smartphone and it like flipped open like a laptop does. And like, I forget the name of that smartphone, but it never, you know, it never took off. It wasn't until, you know, something like the iPhone where, you know, it's easy to use. It's, it's, you know, as a, the average consumer who doesn't want to sort of invest their mental energy in learning the skills of having to do it. Um, you know, I remember the first MP3 player uh, that my friends had were, you know, super hard to use it. Or they had micro discs, if you remember those. Like, yeah. You had to like pile like, you know, 40 CDs onto this, you know, onto this tiny little disc and you had to carry it around. And this, you know, it was this, like little, it was like cooler than a um, Walkman, but it wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't quite the iPod. Mm-hmm. But when the iPod comes out, it's easy to use. You have iTunes. You, you know, that's the innovation that Apple really made there is that yeah. they didn't invent anything. They didn't invent you know, music player. They didn't invent, you know, streaming music. They just created an interface that was easy to use. Mm-hmm. And so when virtual reality becomes easy to use, and, and I'm sure that's where, you know, a lot of work is being, um, in, you know, a lot of investments going into, that's when you'll see the, the environment explode. But yeah, I agree with you too around, you know, could that replace the, you know, what, what replaces, you know, these glowing pocket rectangles that, you know, give us access to, to the world information and phone calls, you know, it could be, it could be VR, it could be, you know, a combination of augmented reality, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, who knows, but it's, you know, once it becomes easy to use, then it doesn't become a pretender technology anymore. And that's when you get that wide adoption. Yeah, that is a, that's a very good point. I mean, that is, and that's leading exactly to where I want to go because when I think about VR these days, I, I should, oh no, please, Record. Okay. Well, it's recording here. Okay. Um, but yeah. So when I talk about VR, I sometimes think about how I need to plug my phone because I don't want to lose what we have so far. So sorry. Sorry. No worries. I also just realized I didn't want to get interrupted. Um, my roommate's out on the deck. He, if he comes in, uh, he'll he'll be quiet. Okay. Okay. No worries. Let me let me make sure that this. The most professional podcast on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, is, this is how it starts. This is how we do it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the easy to use aspect, I think, is probably the most important, one of the most important things about adoption of the medium. Because I, it is, in my opinion, it is a paradigm shift. And what is a paradigm shift, first of all? Like, it's the way, well, according to the, uh, Ray, it's like the way we do things with certain things, like, or the methods we the set of methods that we utilize to do certain processes. And so the paradigm that we're moving from, which is where we have the screen in front of us and a keyboard in front of us, uh, will shift to something where we'll have eye tracking and you know, we'll be using voice commands to direct where the machine will go. And so you know, I'm thinking about like, is there, is there a way to make VR or augmented reality or this thing, the metaverse, like, is there, is there a way to stop this? Because it does seem like it, it, once it gets nailed, it'll be a lot easier for us to interact with the computer world. But I wonder if humans are ready for this new paradigm shift. I mean, you could make an argument for both, you know, 
it being a positive or a negative. So, you know, one of the things, one of the things I think a lot about, you know, one of the, one of the drawbacks of this exponential, you know, increase in, in the development of these technologies is that there's a whole part of society that's being left behind yeah. by these technologies. And, and there's a learning curve that comes along with any new paradigm or any new, any new technology. And so, you know, I'll use, I'll use the, so, so I think a lot about like my parents' generation. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, you know, not as technology, you know, technologically savvy. They don't, you know, they're, they're not used to inter interacting with, with computers and video games and, you know, all these technologies that, you know, our generation sort of grew up with. And so, you know, if you look at, um, you know, like jobs or the labor market, one of the, one of the big barriers to, um, you know, working in tech mm -hmm. is, is having sort of a, a, a savvy background in dealing with these somewhat alienating um, platforms. Yeah. So here's a, here's a great example is like, you know, you never see, a, you know, a seven-year-old, uh, you know, playing an Xbox, you know, mm -hmm. the motors, the motor skills required to, you know, suppress the right buttons at the right time and the timing, you know, requires, you know, building up a, that muscle and that skill. But you do see seven-year-olds, you know, playing Wii tennis because when yeah. the input is just, you know, a handheld controller, you know, it's, it's easy. So, so it, it reopens that environment towards an audience that would have otherwise been alienated. Yeah. And so one of the things I think that's super promising about virtual reality is it, it removes this can't, like somewhat alienating device that, you know, if you haven't had proper training to learn to type or mm -hmm. learn to navigate a browser, or all of these things, you know, it, it enables that many more people uh, who can now sort of interface with these, these technologies. And I think one thing that, that, that could pr uh, pose, um, you know, really real promise for is in the labor market. Yeah. You know, jobs. Like, if it becomes easier to work with technology and work with computers, and you don't need this like really expensive training to understand how to do these things, you know, that could potentially empower a whole group of the population that would have otherwise not had, you know, the the skills to 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 find work. And yeah, I'm with you 100%. And I think there's more to that. But before we get there, I, I want to talk about like what is where does Singularity University fit into all of this, into this narrative of the, of the, you know, the impending uh, coming of the metaverse and the development of virtual reality? Like, where do you guys see yourselves in all of this? So Singularity University is, is very much a place where we want to be having these types of conversations. We, we, we recognize a huge, I think, cognitive gap in society around the idea that most of our structures, most of our institutions, business, politics, uh, society is set up for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And most of, most of the people who are, you know, really tasked with, you know, leading society in, in certain ways are, are now waking up to this, you know, it's been amazing to see the, the growth towards people being drawn to these types of conversations around really understanding that, holy crap, it's really not just this chaotic, you know, pace of change, there's actually a measurable and uh, there are reasons behind why the world is the way it is and where we're going. And if you can learn to think in that way, you can really start to empower people uh, to do really amazing things. And so Singularity University sees itself as a, as a convening body to bring together, you know, various backgrounds, countries, uh, socioeconomic uh, profiles, um, you know, different people from different industries, 
uh, different technology sectors, different schools of thought to come together and really explore, you know, what it what it means to sort of move forward in society today and, and how we can, you know, you know, I mentioned I mentioned that uh, Singularity University is really built around this idea, you know, so we so so our mission, so the mission behind why we exist. Um, you know, so at, at the founding conference that Ray and Peter put together, they pointed out that if you look at some of the world's biggest problems uh, that we face today, they're also rooted in the same concept as accelerating growth or exponential growth. So, you know, you see that with a pandemic, you know, it will start locally and it will spread in an exponential way. We see that, you know, we're seeing that today in, in West Africa. You, you know, you look at climate shift, you know, these these amplifying feedback me mechanisms in the environment, mm -hmm. um, you know, these problems are scaling with, you know, population growth. These are, these are exponential challenges that we're facing. And so the, the mission behind, you know, why Singularity University was founded was to think about how would you as an entrepreneur or you as a business leader or a policymaker, understanding this exponential pace of change, use that thinking towards solving some of the world's biggest challenges. And mm -hmm. so we, we pivot around a, a selection of these, what we call our, our global grand challenges mm -hmm. um, that affect at least a billion people on the planet. And we, we try to point companies, entrepreneurs towards those, those problems uh, to, to use these technologies and to use these think, this thinking to, to address um, some of those, those issues. That is, so that's uh, in, in, incredibly enlightening that you mentioned that. And by the way, I'm recording through my phone because my laptop is acting ghetto, but we're going we're gonna to do this thing. Don't worry. Uh, so, so, but that's amazing. Like, you just blew my mind a little bit because you said that, you know, something that I didn't think about, climate change, uh, population growth. Um, you know, I, I think the, the the fact that we're wa walking into the age of of not having antibacterial uh, medicines like that, those sorts of problems are exponential. And I'd like to get your thought on this. So, does that mean that exponential problems require exponential solutions? Does that mean that we, in order to solve climate change, we need to uh, hold or or wrangle up? an exponential technology like, you know, synthetic biology and use a tree that can grow 10 times faster and absorb 100 times more carbon and use drones to seed the planet. Like, is that the solution? Is to, in this technology, the exponential technology is the solution for every exponential problem. What do you think? I, I think you just may have uh, earned yourself a marketing. We've been looking for a tagline. I love that. Exponential problems require exponential solutions. That's brilliant. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, I would, I would say, you know, exponential technologies may not be, or, well, they're certainly not the, the only, they're not the answer. You know, they're not the answer to, to the world's ill, Ill you know, illnesses at the moment but they certainly require you know are, are, are you know worthy of a seat at the at the table of, of discussion of how are we going to solve these really massive challenges that that society is facing and I think what what's really key here is that you know I remember I remember in in university you know you know I, I, I went to school in the Washington DC community uh, DC area uh, where the culture there is is more geared towards the world's problems, and you know there's you know Washington is in gridlock, and Congress isn't passing any laws, and there's climate shift, and there's pandemics, and there's there's all of these problems that that society is facing, and that's a really you know it's important to be sort of bringing awareness to to, the, to these challenges. But what was new to me, and when I came across 
um, you know, some of the some of the people that have influenced like Peter Diamandis's book Abundance, where he talks a lot about this, um, is that you know, yeah, these problems are really significant, but great news, we actually have the tools and the mechanisms to actually address them, mm-hmm. and that is such a amazing mindset shift when you you don't see the world as gloom and doom you see the world as as sort of an opportunity to to improve upon um you know and technology has a really interesting role to play here because if you think about what technology does is it takes an environment that was once scarce and and renders that environment abundant i mean abundant so the term the, the title of peter's book is called abundance um, and it, it really is meant to speak to this idea that, you know, just like the film photography, uh, film to digital photography, you know, we, we operate from a scarcity mindset. You know, that's just how we're hardwired. We, we evolved in a, in a world where you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. You know, you don't know if that rustling in, in the grass is, you know, a tiger or a snake or, you know, some kind of poisonous animal. You know, you, you really had to sort of be you know, mindful of, of, of what's going on. And your brain actually evolved uh, a really powerful sort of mental organ. It's called the amygdala, which all it does is it processes information and, and um, tries to understand if there's a threat there or not. Is that, is that going to kill me, eat me, um, you know, or, or, you know, what is that? Mm-hmm. So, so we're biologically hardwired to, to, fo- to focus and, and, you know, we have a bias towards the world's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would argue that that solving these challenges will require an exponential set of solutions. So, you know, an example an example that that you mentioned are drones. So, going back to the very first question you asked, you know, what's the power of understanding these exponential curves? We you know how does that how does that empower you to make decisions? So, one of our one of our startups. So, I'll mention Singularity University runs a ten week graduate studies program where we, we bring in 80 students to study these technologies and at the end of the summer we have them create teams uh, that will create a project which we hope will go on to become a startup um, that will positively address a problem that affects at least 1 billion people within 10 years. And so one of our companies, one of our startups from, this was in 2010, uh, was looking at the exponential increase in drone capabilities of carrying a payload. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what they were spotting was this sort of exponential um, increase in, a, in a, a, a payload payload capacity for drones. And so in 2010, I mean, consider this is, you know, way before Amazon Prime and, uh, you know, Amazon drone uh, announcements, you know, they asked the question, could we start developing a platform now that will be developed in time so that when drones can carry these payloads, we could deliver food, medicine, aid uh, in parts of the world that otherwise can't get goods from place to place? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so in, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, the roads wash away during the wet season. Um, you know, so if they could develop a drone network system, sort of a sort of a almost an information packet sharing drone matternet uh, matternet exactly that's the name of the company mm-hmm. uh, so matternet developed this this platform with the understanding that you know in you know several years drones will have reached this maturation phase where they can carry really significant payloads uh, so let's start building the platform now so that's where understanding these exponential curves allows you to make really big bets on what you can design and create. And that's a perfect example where a team using an exponential technology to address, uh, so the challenge they're trying to address is poverty. You know, you you can't really alleviate poverty in parts of the world where you can't get 
goods from place to place. Uh, and so their hope is to sort of address that challenge by leveraging drone drone capabilities uh, to deliver goods from place to place. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing because there's. Uh, I used to. Um, I used to be a, a news addict. I, I still am. I love reading the news. I love. I, I, there's something sadistic or sadomasochistic about wanting to know all the misery that is happening. And then for a while, I was just like, man, why? Why am I doing this to myself? Because it, it, it never helped me. It never helped me with my mood. Until I discovered r slash futurology and r space on Reddit. Those are, if you go on those subreddits, and r Oculus here and there. But most, but if I ever want to get my mood up, I, I, want, I go on r futurology and r space because the, you see this thing happening. You see the exploration of the universe uh, happening through the aggregation of data on Reddit. And you see all these different futuristic ideas coming together and it gives me hope and you know just speaking to that you know that that idea of abundance and you know going forward when i think about ai artificial intelligence and uh, you know uh, there's a few schools schools of thought uh for example you have bill gates and elon musk uh who think that we should be uh, paying attention to making sure that we create, you know, beneficial AI or AI that is not um, ill will towards humans. I think that's valuable, but I don't think that is the most imminent threat. And I want to get a discussion going with you because here's my idea. I think that what Elon Musk and Bill Gates are after, they're after making sure that strong AI doesn't become uh, insane and doesn't take us over, right? But that, and I think that's cool. But I don't know how long it'll take before we see strong AI. What I do see is an AI economy that is currently uh, growing exponentially. And, you know, it's only a matter of time before the exponential growth just of, of the AI economy, economy eats up our own human economy. Like just thinking about, for example, right now in the U.S., two million jobs are mm. transportation jobs. Yeah. And the CEO of Uber, uh, when you know, I don't know when he said this, but he said like, I can't wait to get these drivers out of there so like we can put self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Amazon and UPS and FedEx they want to get those truck drivers out of the road. I want to get people out of the road because the, everybody is, including me, is kind of dumb at driving. We're not supposed to be at six, going 60 miles, 65, 80 miles an hour in a in a flying four-wheeled coffin. <laughs> so. I, so I'm excited for that. I'm excited, but I'm also worried that the AI economy, is, that our own economy is not ready. Our socioeconomic structures are not ready to bear the weight of this new thing. And so here's where it comes. Here, here's where it gets crazy. I think we need the metaverse. I think we really need to create a virtual reality economy that mixes. Uh, you know, the real world with the virtual world and we can port over services and be able to create value and add value without the need of, you know, these monetary systems like the Federal Reserve or the EU banks or whatever. I think we, we need to figure out a way to give people value artificially or outside of the economies that we have, because otherwise, I think... I think we might reverse the clock back if we don't address this thing. But what do you think? Yeah, no, you, yeah, absolutely. You just, you just keyed in on some really powerful topic areas and some, some really interesting insights. So there's, 
So a couple of things, I'll, I'll try and unpackage yeah. uh, some of that. So one of the, one of the, I think, areas of concern that many at Singularity University all share is sort of what you're highlighting around the labor market. Uh, and so there's some great research. I'll, I'll sort of point um, anyone who's interested in really understanding in a deep way um, you know, what happens to the labor market when you start injecting information technologies like robotics, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, you know, all of these sort of automated technologies um, that are really sort of encroaching upon um, jobs. Um, there's, there's research at MIT, uh, Andrew McAfee and Eric Brzgalov, um, I hope I'm saying his last name correctly, I may not be, um, but they have uh, some really great work and research around just that topic and, and some really quite alarming because you're, you're keying in on something really important because society is not set up uh, to, to, you know, absorb all of the unemployment um, at a, at, and it's not that unemployment due to technology is new. What, what is new is the speed at which it's happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, over 50% of most jobs in the U.S. were in agriculture. Uh, today, it's less than 2%, but, you know, but it's not like we have 50% unemployment. All of those, you know, try to tell someone on a farm in, you know, 1903 that, you know, your great grandkids going to be, you know, programming, you know, Google Android apps. Mm -hmm. They would look at you kind of weird. Um, so we found new jobs. What, what's new in society today is the speed at which these jobs are, are washing away. And it's not just blue collar work. It's, it's highly educated, highly trained, highly sought after jobs. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a really great, I know Andrew McAfee references this in his talk at, um, at Singularity University, uh, where you know, at Northwestern University, they created an algorithm. This is a piece of AI. Uh, it's a company called Narrative Sciences, where if you give it the score to a football game or, you know, an earning statement to a stock price, it will write a narrative that if you put side-by-side side next to something that a journalist wrote, you cannot tell the difference. And so Forbes um, magazine today, actually, if you go online and look at some of their earning statements, they, the byline will say, it won't say by, you know, some you know, journalist, it will say, by narrative sciences, um, you know, so they're giving credit of, you know, sort of uh, intellectual copyright to a artificial intelligence. This already exists today. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, what this means is, as we go forward is we're going to have a huge portion of the population that will require retraining for jobs that don't even exist yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think your, your point about, you know, virtual reality, how can virtual reality play a role here is incredible. So I actually, I remember a quote I saw in a Forbes article. Um, the author was uh, Stephen Kotler. He actually co-authored Abundance with, with Peter Diamandis. Uh, the title of the article is, it was actually uh, virtual reality. Um, it, it was something to do with sort of the future of uh, gaming and, and virtual reality. But one of the points he made in the article was, you know, the future of jobs may actually exist in these virtual worlds. You know, you, you sort of already see, I mean, the first millionaire in Second Life is, I mean, there are plenty of people that make an amazing living, um, you know, developing and creating in these virtual environments. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're seeing, I think we're seeing a, a, a weird migration now from value and, and sort of assets being tied up in the physical material world 
um, and, and people finding real value in the, the digital world, the virtual world. I mean, the amount of money that people spend on virtual goods in places like Facebook is already pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's, it kind of it kind of boggles the mind. It's kind of hard to predict, you know, what does a virtual, what does a career in, a, in the metaverse look like? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's really fascinating to think about. And I, I kind of agree with you. You know, I don't know what it looks like, but it really could play a pretty interesting and significant societal role in, you know, where do we reallocate and retrain, you know, many of these people who are otherwise not going to, you know, play a, a real significant role in the, in sort of the material labor market as a lot of that, you know, is, is, is automated. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a, a fascinating concept. I think you're spot on. Uh, yeah, it's just, to me, it's just insane that, uh, and to me, it's just, it, 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 it sometimes keeps me awake at night for a couple of minutes, not very long, but <laughs> but it does. It, the idea that you know it, this 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 economic system, capitalism, the market economy that we've had has been around for a while, and it, there was never a point where you know it, it, this is sort of threads on Marxian ideas of how eventually you know machines will become so efficient that. Just for example, agriculture, it used to take all of us. Everybody in the tribe had to go and be part of, you know, the growing, you know, growing the rice, growing the maize, growing whatever. Now it's like machines doing it and it's like a, a fraction of the population. And so transportation jobs, banking jobs, service jobs, things like that, like an AI could probably do it better, you know. Uh, and so to me, I, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, in, in figuring out what that metaverse economy looks like, I think that human beings, and this is more on the philosophical end, I think that human beings being the most intelligent thing in the universe that we know of, we can spend our whole lives, like I can probably, if you, if you gave me enough money to just hang out and survive, I would probably spend the rest of my life trying to figure out why I'm here. And I think that there's 7 billion other people out there that could probably do the same thing. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> just that fundamentally, just that fundamental question. You can spend your whole life Absolutely. trying to figure out. And I think that when people are trying to figure out value in the metaverse, I think that we need to move away from, you know, making money. I think we have to move towards a new way of what is meaning for us humans. Like, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I'm with you there. I think that, you know, there's, a lot of what drives meaning and purpose for, for people, and I don't know how long, you know, in the scope of human history this has been the case, but at least in sort of modern Western, you know, society, a lot of your meaning and purpose is tied up into to your job or your, mm -hmm. you know, when, when someone asks you, hey, what do you do? The first thing you would say is, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a banker, I'm a financial wealth manager, um, I'm a you know, I, I drive trucks, I, you know, whatever it is, I, I'm a bartender, you know, it's the first thing that, that, that comes to mind. But moving forward, you know, if given the, the freedom and flexibility to, to, you know, find meaning and purpose outside of that, what would people say? You know, hey, I, you know, I create virtual sports and I, and I attend those sports and that's, that's what gives me meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, it's it's really interesting to think about um, you know where you know where you know people will sort of derive their their sense of um, 
you know, their place in, in, in the world. And I think, you know, moving into these virtual worlds is a really force people to ask really powerful questions about, you know, where, where they fit and where, you know, where they, you know, find, find purpose. Yeah. And there's a, there's this thing that, uh, uh, Mr. Kurzweil talked about it in Singularity is near that is also perplexing to me. And it's the idea that, um, where, where this is all headed, because because this is where I'm trying to figure out like where are we headed? <laughs> what's yeah. what's gonna what is what is the you know what's the end goal of all this? Where where you know when we get there, what does that look like? And he says the you, the universe will awaken, um, and he sort of speaks to the idea that we'll be able to turn matter into information, yeah. and we'll be sort of the gods of the universe somehow. Maybe I'm mis- yeah yeah yeah. No, he definitely that. has no, not at all. So well, I don't know. I okay. So so yeah, some of the sort of but yeah, what far-reaching yeah, some of the far-reaching predictions that Ray has about the you know in the big picture of so. So, so the singularity is near refers to, to so Ray has this concept or this idea of the, the technological singularity, uh, which is actually not the way in which singularity university, um, so it's maybe, maybe confusing. The term singularity uh, is actually a term borrowed from physics to sort of indicate um, in, in an environment in which our known understandings and sort of our, you know, the laws of physics no longer apply. You know, for example, the event horizon of a black hole is referred to as a singularity. Um, you know, and so, uh-huh. so Ray borrows this, this term singularity to refer to this hypothetical moment in the future in which the dominant information processor is no longer our own brains, but, but intelligent machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually, and so, so his long-term vision of where this all goes is that really all matter in the universe becomes subject to computation and that every, every atom, every, every physical material thing in the universe is becomes part of some, um, you know, and again, this, I may not be representing this as, as accurately as, as Ray intends, but um, becomes subject to, to, to computation. I, I actually, this is an area where I, I actually disagree uh, with Ray. Um, I, I think that there's, a, there's another piece that goes back to the, to the last question that you asked about um, in, you know, what is, as AI, you know, becomes, you know, relevant and starts automating, you know, becomes the dominant force that does the, the thinking and the cognitive work of, of humanity. If you look at the most powerful uh, decision-making systems, it's when you combine an AI with a human being. There's one thing that, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never say never, but I have a very difficult time understanding where machines may replace sort of humans and humans in the sense of what we know humans to be today is being creative, uh, you know, creating things, being, you know, innovative and connecting, connecting dots. And, and of course, computers will do some of that. You know, they already, you know, make music and, and can paint and can create art. Um, but, you know, if you go back to, to, there's a great example in chess. Mm-hmm. So 10 years ago, uh, you know, at a time when experts were saying, you know, we're, we're decades away from a, an AI system that will ever beat a world grandmaster in chess, uh, IBM created Deep Blue. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, now today, there's not a single human being that can beat um, the best computing or computer chess algorithm. But what does beat that is when you compare a human with an AI, mm. they will always beat a computer or an AI. 
And so this is true. I think I think that's where you see this. It's this merger. It's this it's this mashup between sort of the skills that a human being and and in our capacity to create and to think innovatively and um, you know with with a, an AI sort of narrow sort of raw computational you know muscle is really where you see this going. And so that's that's what I would that's what I would say to sort of address one question previously about that AI, but but. Uh, where this all leads, I actually disagree with Ray on, you know, the impregnating the universe. So I'm, I'm curious, actually, do you, are you familiar with uh, the transcension hypothesis? No, please enlighten me. So the transcension hypothesis, I, I'm, I've been fully sort of bought into this camp of, of buying into this concept. So, so this also begs another question, are you familiar with Fermi's paradox? Yes, a little bit. So Fermi's paradox basically asks the question, if the universe is structured, which it appears to be, you know, so well to, to uh, engender life and, you know, we're, we live in this crazy sort of designed set of cosmological rules where planets, you know, exist inside apparently, I mean, and more research is coming out that there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of, you know, Earth-like planets that, you know, could, could potentially, you know, create and house life. You know, the universe seems to be designed in such a way where we'd expect to see all, you know, the, the universe just teeming with life. And if that's the case, you know, it's, math, it's almost a mathematical impossibility that human, humanity, human beings on this tiny little dot planted in the middle of some obscure galaxy is the most advanced, uh, you know, species that exists in this universe. So if that's the case, and if math and, and all of the, the basic, you know, sort of thinking and intuition would lend, you know, itself to thinking that the universe is teeming with life, why don't we see evidence of it? Where, where is it? Where are the, you know, the Enterprise, Star Trek, spaceships, you know, why, you know, why don't we see any evidence of, this, of, the, of life? And so Fermi's paradox basically asks that question. And so the transcension hypothesis is a, a means towards addressing that, um, that paradox. And so what the transcension hypothesis claims is that when, a, when a, a species becomes sufficiently advanced, is they don't actually colonize outer space. They don't, they don't go outward. They don't big, build like bigger things outward. That's you know, part of their early sort of stage in their advancement. What ends up actually happening is they go inward. They colonize inner space. They, you, know, you see that with you know, computers, you know, computers that were once these big, you know, they filled an entire room are now, you know, they now fit in our pocket. In 25 years, you know, this will, will you know, a billion fold increase in price performance, you know, more powerful will be the size of a blood cell. So you start to, you start to create these infinitesimally small computational environments and eventually you create these, you know, black hole-like environments where you have sort of an infinite amount of computation, you know, in a, in a, infinitely small environment. And so you don't actually go outward, you go, you go inward. And this is why I think virtual reality is going to be a really interesting development because that is essentially worth the baby infancy diaper steps of creating that, you know, maybe we don't go out, we go, you know, we go inward. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's the ultimate, um, you know, progress that, that, that life Inevitably, that's that's just the path that progress in life goes. You don't, you know, you know, you go outward for you know a very small portion of your time. And so I, if anyone's really interested in sort of 
in that idea, I would point you towards a really great resource, Jason Silva. Mm -hmm. He's a filmmaker, really great, fascinating filmmaker, um, really good communicator about a lot of the topics that we're talking about right now. Has a really great short YouTube video on this idea and does a, a really interesting job of explaining uh, the transcension hypothesis. So you just do a quick Google uh, YouTube search and, and you'll find that. But this is that to me that for I don't know I'm a subscriber to that I I really believe that you know. And so by the so the transcension 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 so the transcension hypothesis. Rebrand that. Yeah, the transcension hypothesis. Does it say that we have to? put machines inside of our brain so that we can explore and augment them? Or, I mean, what does that mean to yeah. look in <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the transcension hypothesizer, you know, whoever created this idea uh, had an opinion on that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's another question that comes up quite a bit is, you know, this idea, you know, Ray Kurzweil has these predictions that, you know, we'll be uploading our, our mind to a backup file or, you know, or downloading our consciousness into some substrate that's not this, you know, wet, organic, uh, you know, brain tissue that, you know, we carry around in our head. You know, I, again, this kind of comes back to the idea of trying to make predictions about the future in an exponential world is, is really difficult. I would say one of the big fallacies that I think people have a tough time distinguishing is this idea that, you know, right now machines and robots and AI, they're, they're something other than us. They're not, they're not, you know, we're humans and robots are robots. But if you think about, and, and I've learned a lot from uh, one of my friends who's a post-grad, or she's a PhD researcher in what's called post-human theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and this school of thought basically looks at trying to understand that if you think about, you know, this label of human that we put on, uh, you know, our species, is, we try to fit, you know, the concept of what is a human inside this container, that has been... That is, in reality, an ever-shifting, evolving thing forever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, am I, the first time I put on a pair of glasses, am I human plus glasses, or, or am I just human? I mean, we are already merging with technology, and we have been for, for centuries. I mean, the first, you know, primate that picked up a stone tool, was it primate plus stone tool, or was mm -hmm. it still just, you know, because that, that became a part of the primate's, you know, way of being in the world. And so, like, right now, we're already a mashup of human and machine. I mean, we're, we're talking into, a, you know, a smartphone. I have my iPhone in my hand right now that, you know, I don't have a, a lot of the memories that, you know, previously would have maybe been stored in my mind or, you know, photographs I have on my phone or, you know, access to, you know, to Facebook or uh, Instagram you know, I don't remember any of my friends' cell phone numbers anymore. So, you know, we're already outsourcing some of our cognition to machines. We're already merging with these machines. And so I think the concept, I think it's a fallacy to assume that in the future, you know, it will be, it'll be us over here on one side, and it'll be the robots and the AIs over there. And hopefully, you know, when they become, you know, the dominant information processors, they don't come and destroy us. Yeah. I don't think, I don't, I don't see how that future comes to be. I, I, I already see us merging with this technology and, and becoming, you know, technology, you know, all it does is it shifts and molds the human experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what, what's happening as part of the human experience is now subject to Moore's law, like exponential growth. Mm -hmm. And that will continue. And, and so, you know, it's really interesting to think about 
you know, how, how that plays out in the future. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know if like, hey, like, where are we going to be downloading our consciousness into a computer? Is even the right, is, is that the right question to ask? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's so, it's so far beyond what my, my current brain, you know, understands about the world. You know, and as we, and it's one thing is true, it's that, you know, making predictions about the future, especially when it's growing exponentially, it's, it's, it's almost near impossible when you get beyond a certain event horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we can we can have you know really just you know amazing sort of philosophical discussions about you know robots you know that walk around with human brains and stuff, but I don't know I, I, I don't I don't know if I have an opinion on that or if it's even you know the right question to be exploring. I like you because you said I don't know, and I like that when people say that. Uh, it's not that I'm looking for it, but when I get to a point where people say I don't know, it's like. We reach the edge. Mm. There's a there's a there's a precipice, yeah. uh, and it's nebulous, and we have no idea what it looks like. And it's kind of fun to, you know, push these I don't know as time goes on because we're realizing things little by little. It's fascinating. It's crazy. Something that you mentioned earlier about the singularity and how it's a, it was taken from a term term in physics. Um, I so I don't know if this is a good way of putting it, but you know, extrapolating that, you know, idea of the you. Our laws of physics have no idea what happens on the other side of a black hole, right? And so I, I wonder uh, whether just like the singularity in our world, in our human world, when that occurs, uh, when that, as that occurs, like I wonder how human laws will adapt to this new paradigm shift. You know, how will tort, mm. how will... Uh, you know, marriage law, how will, yeah. like, all sorts of, you know, law, legislation, yeah. all that stuff, how will that, you know, uh, what will the friction look like and how will it adapt? I mean, what will, what totally. will it look like? So, yeah, I mentioned earlier, you know, it's really key to hone in on what is and is not subject to exponential growth. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, <laughs> our ability to make laws <laughs> and to sort of create the regulations of our world, you know, people... People are fundamentally not exponential technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so laws are really, you know, they're important. They're the software that runs society. And, and so how we engineer that software is really important. And so this is a key challenge, I think, for humanity going forward. And, and, and why I think, you know, we're going to see some turbulence in society uh, as a result of a lot of this sort of exponential progress, this exponential pace of change, and that, that turbulence is really going to be driven by the idea that we don't have mechanisms in place to create regulations around the speed at which things are happening. Mm-hmm. You know, we, see, we already see the, the beginnings of that with drones, and, uh, you know, the FAA is, you know, scrambling to try and keep up. You know, I worked, before coming to Singularity University, I worked in life science communications, life science marketing, our clients were, you know, organizations, small, you know, small biotech startups that were trying to take their drugs to market. Um, and, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, before anyone can, can buy a drug, they have to go through FDA clinical trials. Um, the FDA clinical trial system is set up in such a way which, you know, it's, it's there for, you know, rightly to, to protect the patient, protect the consumer. Uh, but in a world where, you know, a drug becomes obsolete before it can even complete, like, the 10 years it would take to go through clinical trials, mm-hmm. it's, it's just not set up in a way 
you know, regulation is not set up for, for the world of where we're headed. It's set up for a world of where we've come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, this is key. And I, and I think this is one area where, again, I love that you, you picked up on the I don't know. Uh, one of my, I mean, it's so mind-boggling to think about the more we learn about the, the universe and how it works and all these things were, you know, in biotech, how, you know, genomics works, the more we realize we don't, we really don't know. Like, we're, we're the more we learn, we, we learn, we're basically uncovering previously unknown unknowns and creating more, I mean, known unknowns, but that set of unknowns is, is, is massive. And I don't think anyone at Singularity University, even our experts, even, you know, the top, uh, you know, innovators in their, in their respective fields have a really compelling answer for how society is going to police itself in, in this world. Because, you know, what's true is that, you know, to access a supercomputer, you know, with the capabilities of this iPhone that fits in my hand, mm-hmm. was only accessible to the wealthiest research labs. Mm-hmm. And you had to work for the government, you had to work for a big company. Mm-hmm. The fact that you and I, you know, each have one of those supercomputers that fits in our pocket, and that's what's happening in biotech, robotics, AI. You know, the fact that you and I can create, a, you know, and you know, a, a virus in a in a wet lab that you know previously probably would require millions of dollars of um, lab space. And today, you know, we could equip our garage for you know maybe ten thousand dollars, and and that is only increasing. You know, that means that you know anyone will be empowered. And so there are incredible sort of regular regulatory issues and concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the one of the reasons Singularity University exists is to really drive people in a position of creating policy to think deeply about how we do this. Yeah. Uh, and that that's gonna be that's gonna be a real important and key, you know, government. You know, what is government in the digital world, the digital twenty first century look like? Yeah super important and 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 that's that that those are some of the conversations that we're having the obstacle and i and and uh, feel free to not touch this one because it might be touchy but the obstacle i feel in terms of uh, getting getting the these ideas out to government and the, the people uh, behind this you know when you say there's when you say there's gonna you sense there's gonna be turbulence, I think there already is, you know, with the SEC and the whole net neutrality thing. I think that is a perfect example of an old paradigm, the cable industry trying to turn the internet into the cable model. We were in San Francisco. Exactly. So I I I mean it's and I haven't they haven't even gone to virtual reality or synthetic biology or nanotechnology. Like those things who knows if they will they will ever get the chance to because they're so they, you know they're so slow. What they, they took a recess, for example Congress, uh, they took a three week recess this month. Why I don't know. You but I'm sure you got a lot of stuff to do, don't you, buddy? Yeah. So um, so yeah. What do you think? Like this, this. Yeah. In the in the government on sort of the policy front, there's a really interesting mega trend, and I'm I'm gonna cite one of our faculty here who who really sort of does a lot of research around this. Uh, Paul Sappho is a professor at Stanford uh, in the MediaX program. He's a, sort of a world-renowned forecaster, futurist. Um, he has, he has a, a pretty fascinating concept or idea that the era of nation states where you sort of convene at the federal level uh, and really sort of create laws that, you know, are subject that that the whole their sort of their entire country is are subject to is really going away, mm-hmm. and and we're seeing the emergence of the city state or reemergence because it used to be true and you know mm. you know uh, 
uh, you know, in ancient Greece, for example, that you had a, a you know, collection of these city-states where, you know, you had a manageable, I mean, a city, if you think about it, a city is it's small enough where everyone sort of knows where they fit, where, you know, you know how the, the culture runs, you know, you can create laws that are, you know, relative to that community um, that, are, that are, you know, important and relevant for, for small groups of people, but it's large enough where you, you really get the, the economies of scale and creating these laws that actually matter. Um, whereas the federal government, and we see this in the U.S., of course, with the, you know, you know Congress and, um, you know, just the gridlock there. Um, and so he, he makes the argument that the, the role of the, you know, the, the, the president, the, the, you know, Congress, Congress people are, are, are diminishing, whereas the, the role of the mayor and city and local city governments is really uh, expanding. You'll start to see, uh, again, this might, this might start to become a little more fringe, but I, I, I was listening to a really fascinating podcast about um, this guy, I think it's called the Seasteading Institute. Mm-hmm. But basically, you know, whether that's technologically feasible today, I don't know, but it's basically this concept that you, in international waters you can create these self-sustaining communities of people um, the concept that I took away from it, that the, I forget the guy's name um, was talking about, that fascinated me. Imagine introducing the concept of competition mm-hmm. towards policymaking. Like, if I don't like the laws or the regulations in this place, you know, they restrict my freedom to, you know, have coffee or they, they don't let me, you know, put my water in a, in a Brita. I have to get it out of the tap, you know, or they tax me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like that. I'm going to go to this other said that's over here and you vote with your feet you vote with your your citizenship mm-hmm. and and that's such an amazing concept like imagine if you know governments you know and were competing for citizens competing for hey our laws are you know we believe we have these cultural values and I think in the US is it you know our, our politics are as polarized as the people in which it, it represents and so Imagine working, uh, living in a future where I, you know, I associate with people that have these values. I want to go with there and, and, and be subject to those laws. And, you know, how this fits into a global marketplace is still, I, I still kind of have to work through. Uh, but that concept of introducing competition to policymaking is fascinating to me. That is fascinating. I'm going to have to think about that for a long time now. So thank you for that. I'm going to have a couple sleepless nights. <laughs> My friend James Laha always is always saying things that like leave me thinking for a while. And I, uh, do you have five more minutes? I have a couple more questions. So, so, so he said something the other day that like left me wondering a lot. And he said something like. Uh, and I only remember the sentence completely out of context. I don't remember what the context was, but he was like, information will be the currency of the 21st century. And I don't know if he got that from Ray Kurzweil or Diamantes or some other thinker, but I want to know what your take on that is. Is, that, is there some truth to that? Is, you know, what's going to happen to the dollar and the Bitcoin and the mm-hmm. other stuff? Well, maybe Bitcoin is information, I would say, but yeah. not... It's still, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is still tied to, a, you know, to, to, to an asset class that, I don't know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, I'm still wrapping my head around, but, but Bitcoin is interesting. I, I, it's an interesting concept. I mean, value being tied to information is probably, you know, you probably already see that. I mean, you know, you as, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a concept, that, you know, anything that you can access for free, like Facebook, you don't pay for Facebook. You're not Facebook's customer. Mm-hmm. You are Facebook's product mm-hmm. because you are consuming articles, media impressions, 
uh, advertisements. You're you're creating information about yourself yep. that Facebook can then package and sell to its advertisers. And so in that sense, you know, information is really the the asset that's that's being packaged and sold in that in that exchange. Um, you know, absolutely. I I think that you know we are we are going to move towards uh, you know a world in which if, you know here's another great example one of one of Singularity University's startups um, looked at the role of these um, fitness devices like the Nike Fuel Band or Jawbone or uh, Up Jawbone uh, so that what's the other one Fitbit yeah so whatever whatever those devices are that people wear mm -hmm. that track their physiology and what they found is that it, was, it wasn't causation of the correlation that people that and I don't know if it was that by wearing those or by tracking or like people that pr had certain data about that mm -hmm. are better credit risks for banks to lend to. And so they would actually, so they created oh. a, so they, one of the, they put a company around the idea of if you're a bank and you want to find, you know, some group, of, some portion of the population that, that are better um, customers for uh, making for loans, um, you can actually track you know, you either you give away the, the Fitbit and the Jawbone, and you track their health mm -hmm. uh, or their 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 physiology, and they get better rates or they get some benefit um, associated with wearing that. And really, what the bank is after is information about their their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it used to be true that the only information, you know, in healthcare, for example, were you know your blood pressure, your you know your blood oxygenation, your your heartbeat, your heart your pulse. Now you can measure, you know, I've got accelerometer in my phone that can measure my sleep quality. Yeah. I've got, you know, information about how far I'm walking. This is all just information. Mm -hmm. And as we start to apply, you know, data science and, and machine learning and, and AI towards that information, you're going to distill um, so much value and so much, you know, I think, I, I think, uh, information, I, this is a quote, I forget, I don't know who's, who's used it, I've heard this at conferences, maybe cliche, but um, big data is like the new new oil. Getting data, or drilling for data, or drilling oh. for information mm -hmm. is the new oil. Like finding finding value in large sets of data yeah. is where the future the future is. Wow, that is powerful and deep. And I think it's true. I think it's crazy that it's that it's shifting in that direction. I think it's a good thing too that I, we're moving away, or we're going to move away more and more from oil, um, because of the exponential nature of the problem of climate change. Then I want to ask about so so the next question that you left me, the next thing that you said that left me thinking a lot was the idea of the transcendence uh, hypothesis. Transcension hypothesis. Transcension hypothesis, where you have to where you these civilizations or these species. Before they went outward, they go inwards, right? And th to me, what that feels like is, uh, and feel free to discuss this freely, like, but I wonder like, w what that might mean for us right now is that VR will be the tool with which we will look inward. I think that I am uncovering a lot of new things about myself, about my brain, um, just by paying attention to the things physiologically and my, the mental thoughts that are running through my head as I'm in VR. And so I, I wonder whether, whether we'll get to an age of more biomass biofeedback where we'll be actually have some sort of EEG brainwave, brainwave scanner tied to the Oculus Rift and you can see your brainwaves 
in real time or I mean that I, I love that idea that yeah. we'll be able to explore ourselves and and through that I think we'll be able to explore the universe better because Absolutely. I think that our right now I don't think I don't think we humans are ready for deep space or even like deeper than the moon space travel I think I think we're going to have to look inwards and work out some kinks in our brain and who we are before we really as a society as a species even try to push this thing you know try to push outwards so I think VR is that thing that you know might be the trans trans one more time transcension hypothesis yeah it's tough <laughs> I know and whoever came up with that transcension 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 transcendent because you know yeah. what I'm confusing it transcendent <laughs> yeah exactly so uh, yeah transcension hypothesis it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating fascinating concept it is um, and and yeah I think you know basically what that that argues is that we're we're gonna create some parallel um, you know, environment, you know, separate from this, you know, whether it's contained in, in computation, whatever it is. Um, the other the other point you mentioned is that the biofeedback, I think, is mm -hmm. really fascinating. You know, these, these become tools that, you know, allow us to sort of augment our, our experience of, of the world. And, um, you know, imagine being able to see your brain in real time. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a meditator. I, I like to, um, I use it as a tool to sort of, uh, you know, try and remain, you know, as balanced and find equilibrium as much of my life as possible. I know how sort of hippie California that sounds, but, um, you know, I'm, I would love a tool. And I think actually Phil Brosdale, who I know you've had on uh, previously, had a pro I think it was called Project Glass, mm -hmm. I believe, where he essentially combined the use of, a, of with Oculus and fMRI, was able to watch in real time. Um, and if I miss... Um, communicating that in some way. It's something along that concept. But, mm -hmm. but even hypothetically, in some future world, if I could like watch what my brain is doing in real time, and, and you know, we can already do this through biofeedback, yeah. but, it's, but it's doing that where you can actually you know, navigate the inside of your, you know, your, your body in real time and watch what's happening as your, your heart rhythm or mm -hmm. watch what's happening in your, your, you know, your vagus system that monitors your um, you know, your, your sort of sense of well-being and mm -hmm. your, your nervous system. You imagine being able to learn to sort of take control of those systems. You can really enhance the, the experience that, that we have of the world. Or you can see what a migraine looks like. Maybe yeah. you'll be able to, like, see what a migraine looks like, or you'll be able yeah. to think puppies, and you'll be able to see your brain changing in real time, or dead kittens, and you'll see yeah. your brain changing in real time. Like, there's some weird shit that we think yeah. <laughs> that we can do for sure um, with our thoughts. Uh, but yeah, sorry for interrupting. I think um, let me ask you this really quick. Yeah. What What about the people who don't want to come along in the singularity? What What about the people who just want to live with, with nature and you know have small you know a small farm with chickens and you know I, what do you think about it? people? Who, that's a good question because you know what's what's I, I almost see it as inevitable that some portion of society is going to ride these curves. They're going to go exponential. They're going to be early adopters as early as possible and be, you know, as soon as Intel releases some brain chip implant that connects to, you know, Google and they can be, you know, connected to Wi-Fi anywhere they are, they're going to be there doing it. But there's also going to be a portion of the population that is quite alienated by, you know, the emergence of really accelerating fast-moving technologies, and they're not going to want that 
you know, and you see, I mean, throughout history, there have always been, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in the Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia area where, you know, the Amish communities are, you know, really interesting, um, you know, part of society that have really, you know, sort of adopted a, a minimalist approach to, to, to living and it, and it works great for them. And I think, you know, I think as we, you know, one thing that technology allows for is a, is a reverse back to sort of community-based, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of, leaving the 20th century industrial factory mm. urban sprawl life and we're moving back towards you know communities and maybe there will be more of an opportunity for for again people who have the same cultural values or the same you know you know goals and hopes and dreams and ways of being in the world can 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 connect and and you know for for a community like that it's probably going to be like physically location based ways of connecting, yeah. um, but I don't know, because, you know, there are always going to be people that, that are quite alienated, you know, one of the things I think very deeply about at, at Singular University is, you know, we, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, in synthetic biology, the, I don't think people or society have really truly woken up to the ethical considerations of what we're doing, I mean, we're basically taking the, the software of life, and we now have control of it. And so, you know, there are religious implications, there are ethical implications, and so how we navigate that environment and, and, and taking the needs in an in a embracing, holistic way that, you know, we're all, we all come to these conversations with a different mindset is, is really important. And, and so, you know, I hope that there's, there's a role in the future for, for anyone who chooses to, you know, I have a, one of my best friends, you know, deleted his Facebook, you know, it's, you know, and that's not that crazy, but, you know, as an example, you know, I, you know, he's, and a part of it is he's removing himself from this whole world. I mean, there's a whole digital world on Facebook of things that happen and conversations that occur and articles that are shared and, you know, viral sensations that become part of a cultural norm that oh. he's not a part of. Or events that he organized or things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, for now, it's fine. You know, for now, it doesn't really impact his way of being in the world, but, you know, I could envision a future where that decision or a decision to remove yourself from whatever trends or technologies are happening is a decision to alienate yourself from, you know, society in some way. And that, as a human being, we're not hardwired for isolation. We are a social animal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's again, like, bottom line, I don't know, but I, I think these are, these are certainly sort of society questions, societal questions that are really important to think about. So I like to think about these questions and work out solutions inside my head that help me sleep at night in terms of like, um, you know, how can we have our cake and eat it? How can the most people on planet Earth both have, take advantage of these amazing technologies and advances in, you know, the exponential growth in computing, but at the same time stay connected to the natural world? And my solution is uh, tree houses and tree cities. I don't mind living in a treehouse, and in that treehouse, I'll have an artificial intelligence that will speak, that I'll be able to interact with while I'm inside the metaverse, holographic or virtual metaverse. And yeah, from that treehouse, I'll have drones deliver my groceries, and I'll have, you know, a, a, a sling that will take me from a treehouse to my next neighbor to go play virtual pool. I don't know, whatever. But I think that I, that just like how you're saying, we're using synthetic biology to manipulate life itself, you know, like software, I think that we need, that we could perhaps create 
the next architectural monument of humanity can be, you know, a merger of sustainable building and bio life itself. I don't know. I agree with I agree with the spirit of what you're saying. I would caution I caution people to think, you know, a lot of the a lot of the technology that you just described that, you know, that you know those technologies may or may not exist in the in the next, you know, maybe, you know, a drone in the way, like a car, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, today we think of a car as these, you know, boxy metal, you know, four-wheeled carriages. They all kind of look the same. They all have like the same basic shape. But the the design variables or the selection pressures that created the design of that car mm -hmm. were subject to a combustion engine that had to sit in a certain part of the car, and so you had for a safety profile and others. But if you you know move to electric vehicles that don't have the engine, mm -hmm. and you move to a driverless car, the design of what a car even looks like mm -hmm. may not be a boxy-looking four-wheeled thing. It may look completely different. And so, so the spirit of so so the point being, you know, will drones delivering your groceries and AIs in your in your treehouse, you know, that that you know that may be. You have to we have to be careful of of, of applying today's technologies and linearly extrapolating what a future might look like. But the spirit of what you're saying, I totally agree with. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, the one of the great developments that we're seeing with technologies is this almost like reversion back to nature. This back to, you know, how nature's designed is yeah. is is so powerful. It's it's built in harmony and, and and truth and 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 just equilibrium and it's so it's it's and the closer and the more efficient our, our designs of systems be the more it mimics what what nature looks like, and you know the the idea of like a tree. How imagine imagine genetically modifying some seed to have the DNA of of a tree that literally you plant it and it grows into a fully functional treehouse. Mm -hmm. You know, and and like the idea. So like the the point being there, you know, there was no, you know, I think the 20th century, which was defined by you know heavy industry and coal burning, you know, fossil fuels and smoggy, you know, heavy, you know, environment is really moving towards, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of shifting and, and migrating towards, you know, clean tech, you know, light environment that, you know, is, is, isn't subject to, to, to all of the, the constructs of the 20th century. And I think as nature develops, it's, it's developing Towards bringing us back in harmony with nature, and that is, that to me is, is such a beautiful part of, of where technology can play a role in, in taking us. And I, I would love to, to join you in that treehouse. I'm, a, I'm a, a big frequenter of, of Big Sur and, and Santa Cruz area, where there are many, many treehouses. That's so, awesome, man. Yeah. Last two questions. I know we're running out of time. We're running low, but here's here we're gonna go out with a bang. Uh, first of all, uh, would you ever augment your brain? And then the second question uh, is, if an AI came up to you, if, 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 if you're Neo and the AI comes up to you and says, uh, Neo, I am going to get rid of war, I'm going to get rid of poverty, I'm going to get rid of um, all this human misery that we humans sort of self-perpetuate, <laughs> like, you know, like violence and stuff, you know, I'm going to get rid of all that, but I, I want your consciousness. Um, I don't know what that means. You, you, you can, you can, you can. You Those can. are some deep questions. <laughs> but but let, let's start with the first. Would you augment your brain? Um, interesting. If you were to ask me that maybe like a year or two ago, I would have said absolutely. Like any, like brain enhancement you can give me that I know is safe and functional, absolutely. I love the idea. I'm someone who is 
acutely self-aware of my own cognitive function, you know, how articulate I feel I'm being, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always trying to get an upper, you know, an upper hand. The one thing, I don't know, because I think what's, what I've discovered is that any, for every up, there's a down. I think that's just a fundamental law of the universe for any, you know, any, any time you drink coffee, there's going to be, you know, a, a fuzzy, you know, fallout at, at some point, mm -hmm. you know, any, any brain enhancement, um, you know, I, I don't know if you could ever convince me that we'll find some way to truly, you know, enhance brain function without some drawback. Yeah. But if I could, and you could somehow convince me that I could enhance my brain, and I mean, absolutely. If I, you know, one of the, the most sort of empowered feelings is, is when you feel on and you feel that, you know, that flow state when everything just clicks and, you know, you can connect with people, you're, you're more empathetic, you can have better conversations, you have more fun at the bar when you're with your friends, you're, you know, if, and if I could put my brain into that state at will, absolutely. Really quick, what would be the first thing you do if you had a brain that could process information 10,000 10, times more than what you have right now? Oh my goodness, I would just lose it. I, you know, there's <laughs> like limitless right there. Like I would learn as many languages as I could, Ooh, nice. absolutely. I would Very just, cool. I would become just a, uh, just a language connoisseur. I would, I, I, because that to me allows you to, to connect with people mm -hmm. in, in an empathetic way. Languages for sure. Um, the second question about my consciousness. Yeah, crazy question. I, you know, <laughs> premise of understanding what consciousness even is. We're not quite there. Yep. Um, you know, the the carrot that you dangled in front of me. To be honest. You know, as, as maybe as, as as bad as it sounds, I think the world and, and like I'll take I'll take my own experience of life as an example. You need those you need those scrapes, you need those scratches, you need that resistance. You need you know you know when you go to a gym and you want to build muscle, you don't just you know pick up a water bottle and put on you know read you know Maxim and put your iPod in and and just sit in a sauna. You have to like you have to feel that resistance. So yeah. for in order to improve, I think progress is built on that that resistance that is um, you know part of it. So I think, and that makes you stronger, and that's where you grow. And I need you know, so you know, war is pop. You know, I you know, it, there, you know, there's there's so much unnecessary cruelty and violence in the world, and it's and it's you know the result of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, but it's but it's also a major driver of you know, people seeking to, to make things better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't know if you can build muscle and improve and make progress without the resistance. And, and you know, if you can remove unnecessary violence and, and cruelty, then, then yeah, I mean, we, we should always seek to, to trend towards, you know, minimizing that, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but would I want to eliminate all problems? You know, I don't, I don't know. In my own personal life, I would. I, I don't think I would want to live a life without some some problems, without some challenges, without some hardships. I, I don't think that you you get a real appreciation for for the ups without without yeah. the downs. So yeah, that's. I don't know. I think I'd hold on to my consciousness. Yeah, uh, that's a very that was a really good way of putting it. And you know, to me, it makes me it makes me think like, all right, well, there's so much truth to that. Like, we need struggle to improve. I, I feel like um, I have a, a good friend who said something to me when I was 14 that has never, that sort of changed me for the rest of my life. He said, Chris, you need to be uncomfortable. You know, you, be, you need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable for the rest of your life. 
because that's how you grow. And so I wonder, like, once we merge with the AI, with the machine, like, what will be the driver of, of, our, of our, you know, wanting to move forward? What will be the resistance? What will be our struggle once we have that? I don't know. It's very speculative sort of thing. I would, I would point anyone who's the, one of the most influential pieces of literature that in my life is a book called The War of Art by Stephen Yes, Sheffield. that's a good one. Yeah. Yes. That is one of my, I mean, the first book I would ever point someone who wants to really you know, why, the question about why am I here and what, you know, if you can, if you can sort of, exactly what you just described, I mean, that's a beautiful way of putting it, you know, uncomfortable, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, if you don't have that, if you don't, if you don't have that ability to navigate struggle, then you will never, you'll never reach the peaks, you'll never have those, you know, those highs, and it's a great question because business and society today is, in these technologies, what do they do? They deliver comfort. You know, they deliver an on-demand car that will take me, you know, for $5 Uber pool, you know, anywhere in the city I want to go. And I don't even have to think about it. I literally just press a button. I, you know, I haven't done laundry since I moved to San Francisco because I use Washio. I just have this guy in a shirt that brings me a cookie. I hand him my laundry and then two days later they bring my laundry back. So this is, this is where, you know, technology is, is, is bringing us is more and more comfort. There really is an app for everything. No, there's an app for everything. Absolutely. Washio. But yeah, so the, so great question. I, you know, where is that resistance going to come from? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, comfort is a seductive, seductive drug. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's, yeah. So, so we'll see where we end up. Aaron Frank, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for blowing my mind. I, I could go on for hours here, but, but I know you have things to do and you have a singularity to build uh, or help build. Thank you so much for your time. How can people stay in touch or follow what you're doing and all that good stuff? Yeah, so, so, uh, so Singularity University, uh, if you want to check out more about, about the organization, so it's uh, singularityu.org. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a Twitter, at singularityu. Um, if people want to follow my Twitter personally, it's just at a frank twenty six. Okay. Um, you know, happy to be in touch. Um, my, I think my contact details are all on the Singularity University website. But, but yeah, definitely check out the website, and uh, we'd love to get people involved. Sweet. Uh, yeah. So all of that information will be in the show notes. Aaron, it's been a pleasure. You are a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality and the metaverse. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and thank you. No, this is great. Appreciate it.